Thank you for this invitation again. This, this is always, I've done this a few times here. Uh, not a lot, but every time it's been a huge honor, a huge encouragement to me. And uh, yeah, I love you guys. And this is, this is a role that I don't get to enjoy very often. Um, however, I always stress about. Uh, this is not my normal setting of my work. Uh, I do teach, but um, I, I, I once was asked, like, you, you know, you can teach a graduate class for three hours and you're stressing about a 20-minute sermon? And uh, first of all, we're here together as a community of equals, as children of God. In a classroom setting, there's a little bit different expectation there, right? The other thing is, and this, <laughs> this isn't a critique of, 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 of sermons, uh, I like the graduate class setting where it's, it's a dialogue. There's a lot of back and forth. As you say three hours of a class, well, it's probably one hour of me talking, and the rest of it is responding to what, what's being said, and I'm here talking at you. So go ahead and shout out, be like, no way, you know, ask a question. But first, <laughs> I, I maybe should not have said that with Margot sitting right here. Um, <laughs> let's, let's start, though, um, by reading in Mark. Mark 10, 17 to 31. And this is a passage called The Rich and the Kingdom of God in our, how we've organized some of these narratives. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Uh, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed. And said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecution. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray. 
Dear Lord, our King, I pray that we together can serve you in how we engage with your word. I pray for your Holy Spirit to speak in our hearts and to bind us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for this time you've given us together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, this... (laughs) Craig gives me these passages. We got, we've, got, we've got a lot to work with here. Um, and I have a little bit of extra pressure. Uh, um, my father-in-law, uh, the Reverend Dave Troop. Hi, Dave. He's watching from above. <laughs> Up there, not. Um, <laughs> he told me last night, that, not to put pressure on me. I think, I think he was really excited to share this with me. But Dave, when you said this was your favorite passage to preach from, I felt pressure, (laughs) but I love it. I get to do this, and thank you, Dave, for your input last night. This passage to me is all about context. This passage has been used in all kinds of directions, and I think some of you, if you've been in the church for very long, you've you've seen that. Um, A lot about wealth. I've heard passages about greed, or not passages, sermons about greed. Um, I've heard sermons about caring for the poor. I've heard sermons about first and last, and what does that mean? Um, I've heard sermons about camels and needles. Context can help us. I'm going to try very hard to not run down all those rabbit trails. I believe, as I read this and as I've studied this passage, I believe there is one main point that Christ is making here, but then a lot of other passions of Christ that come out as he's making that point, okay? So we're going to focus on that one point, and then we're going to talk about a little bit of applications. As I've done with each of my sermons, I want to tell you a little bit about my process, and when I, when I, when I try to come up with a sermon, when I even just study the Bible for myself. I want to understand the context, then I want to analyze as much of, as I can of the passage in light of that context, and then, in light of that analysis, ask myself, all right, so how does that affect my context today and in my life? So we're going to walk through that process a little bit together. So let's kind of chunk it out, though. Let's, let's, let's go ahead and approach this now. However, let me tell you just how important context is to me. Not just as a linguist. We, we, do, we study that a lot. Um, as an anthropologist, I study that a lot. That's, that's what we're... That's the whole job. Uh, as Bible translators, we, there is not a single class we go through where they don't basically give the chant, context, context, context. And uh, it's really important. It's important in life, too. I, and I've learned it in some ways before I started my academics, um, but then also uh, through our work in Nepal. One of my hobbies has always been hiking, uh, some mountaineering, some rock climbing, um, One of the benefits of our work in Nepal is my commute is my hobby. It's it's uh, this the next trip that I have coming up. It's it's about uh, 90 miles of walking to get to the to the the main village that I'll be working in up up close to the border with with Tibet, and it's wonderful. And thank you for letting me cheat the system and have an amazing commute with your with your support. (laughs) But there's an important lesson you learn very early in a hobby of hiking through the mountains. You either learn it early or you end early. 
and its context. If your focus is the trail, you are about to walk into danger no matter what. Um, if your focus is just the view, you're about to walk into danger. We have some friends, uh, some colleagues in Nepal, and, and um, she, she, we got noticed once that she was being medevaced to Thailand. Um, she'd fallen on a hike uh, through, the, through the Himalayas. And um, I asked her husband, what happened? And he said, she didn't stop to look down. She was looking up at the view and just walked right off a cliff. <laughs> Context, right? <laughs> Every trip I've done, I'm looking at the weather, I'm looking at avalanche risk, I'm looking at my, the context of me, how am I feeling, uh, I'm looking at the issues of altitude. Everything is about context. We don't get to live in a world isolated and controlled by ourselves and what we wish was happening. We have to look at what's happening. That's how we have to treat the Bible. If we do it, it makes a lot more sense, and I think it's a lot, it brings in a lot more caution into how we interpret. Let's approach this passage with that kind of care of context, that our very understanding of who God is uh, needs to be placed into the context of what Jesus said, not just what he said, who he said it to, where he was when he said it. So what's the context of this passage? Well, let's look at, at the chunk and what's before it and after it. Well, this is towards the end of Mark. Getting close. Jesus is on the way. It starts off, and Jesus started on his way. Do we know where he's on his way to? Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross. The very next chunk, starting in verse 32, you know what the title of that section is? Jesus predicts his death a third time. Chapter 11, one right after this, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king, Palm Sunday. So when we read this, we need to hear Jesus' urgency. These are the things that need to sink in for his disciples, especially. So on this road, where Jesus knows where he's going, Jesus knows what his disciples are following him into, we have this rich man who shows up. I, we don't know much about him other than he's wealthy, but we know something about the culture here. So... And it starts off with him saying, good teacher. There's a context right there. Why did Jesus say, well, why do you call me good? There's a cultural context happening. Calling someone good, a person good, was actually seen as a dangerous thing to do in Jewish culture. Pharisees always recommended against doing that. Because only God is good. To call someone else good is to put them on the level of God. And yet this guy shows up and calls him good teacher. And Jesus kind of calls him out on that a little bit, softly, I think. I don't think he's trying to butter Jesus up. I think he sees something. And that's why he's there. And that's why he's on his knees. But he does switch it, notice. He, he, the next time he says it, he's the teacher, he declared. All these I have kept. Okay, so he comes to Jesus with, with a question. Now we're back into just the words here. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How often do we ask that question? How often do we as a church uh, ask that question? How often do we as a, when we evangelize, what must you do to be saved? In missions training, we hear it all the time. So this guy's asking Jesus that. And Jesus answers with 
basically the, the expected answer for this time. And he, said, he lists off some commandments, right? He lists off six of them. Do you want to hear the ones he left off? Okay, here, let, me, let me just read real quick again the ones that he's listed. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not, what is it? shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now compare that to these that, that Jesus left off. I, don't, I think he's answering with a twist. I think he's prepping, what he's, he's prepping the main point that's coming. Okay? He's not, he's not actually calling the guy out on this one, but, but there's a reason that I think he left these out. The four he left out are, you shall, not have, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord and God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. He left off the ones that are about our relationship with God. And he noted the ones that are about our relationship with others. So, then the guy says, yeah, I've done all that. I did it. I'm good. We're ready to roll. And then comes another context moment. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And here comes, a, here comes a Pastor Dave into this sermon just a little bit. He pointed something out to me last night. The word for looked. It's the only time that that version of looked in Greek is used in the Gospels. And it's like <laughs> Jesus knows him. He sees who this person is. He looks into him. Not just, hey, there you are. I love you. No, it's, I see you. And I love you. I know what your struggle is. That's a very different depth to that moment as we read it, isn't it? Than if you just say, he looked at him, he loved him, and he said this. No, no, no. Jesus, on his way to the cross, saw this man on his knees before him. And he knew him. And he, he loved him. He loved him enough to call him out on something very important. So, Jesus says, yep, you did do all these things, but you're missing one, one thing. Go sell everything, give it to the poor, follow me. Now, that piece is the source for a lot of sermons. It's not the main point yet, though. You're seeing a passion of... You're seeing one of Christ's passion. If you want a passage about giving to the poor, there's a lot of other ones that are stronger, that, where that is the main point. This may not be that. I think we're seeing one of those, we're seeing th something that Christ is passionate about as he's working up to the main point. The guy says, I can't, I can't do that. And he walks away sad. I can't give it all up. Now, and then Christ says, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? That's another phrase that, that uh, I believe has been misused a lot. Now, one of, the, one of it might be a translation problem. I would actually, looking at, at the Greek, I would actually translate that as those who put their trust in riches. How hard is it for those who put their trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? Um, but maybe that's spelling it out a little too much. Jesus likes to do this. <laughs> he does a lot of preparation. Sometimes it's sarcasm. Those are pretty fun. Sometimes it's, it's responding to an inflammatory question with something that doesn't seem logical, and then he brings God's logic into it, right? A lot of times it's tapping into a cultural belief and then turning it on its head. And I believe that's what he's prepping to do right here. 
He knew what the, where the guy's trust was, and he called him out on it. Was the real command, sell everything, give it to the poor? Or was that what he knew the guy had to do in order to follow the real command of, follow me? That's something that we need to process, I think. What is hindering us from following Christ? And remember the context again. Where is Christ going? What is he asking him to follow him into? The cross. Suddenly this passage starts to take on more meaning, I think. And we understand the struggle that this guy's facing. Now, he, I don't think the guy knew, knew what Christ was really asking in follow me. We do. Now, here's, a, here's an interesting thing. The disciples, so Christ says it's really hard for the rich to get into the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed. I don't know. I've, in my work around the world, I've worked with some, some very wealthy and I've worked with some very poor. Um, I, I kind of get what Jesus might be saying here. Um, I think it's, if you have nothing, it's easier to trust in the one who made everything. If you've got something, it's easy to look at that and say, I earned that. And forget that there's one who made everything. So I kind of, you know, and, and there's a good sermon there too. That's not my sermon today. We're going to have a lot of these like, and that's not my sermon today. We'll get there, I promise you. Um, they're amazed. Why would they be amazed by this? All right, time for cultural context again. There was a common belief among the Pharisees, who were the teachers, uh, among the, the Jewish community, that was shared pretty broadly that wealth was a sign of God's blessing. That, ah, well, you know, if you've, if you've, uh, if you've been successful uh, and you're wealthy, then clearly you're on your way to the kingdom of God. That was actually a pretty common belief. It's a common belief in many cultures, actually. Uh, I see it. I see it a lot, not just in, in, um, in Christian churches, um, but I see it among Buddhist communities. I see it among, you know, this idea that if we're successful at our endeavors, clearly God's put his stamp of approval on us. Well, that was really rampant in this time, that belief. And that's why you get that reaction that says, if he can't be saved, who can? If the rich can't be saved, who can? There's an almost desperate moment there, and it's because of a cultural lesson that had been drilled into these disciples. If the rich can't, who? And then Jesus goes in, and he kind of, he kind of drives the nail in a little further into this, um, this cultural belief, and he says, look, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, now we're at the point of what most sermons are about, I think, in what I've looked up, uh, who address this passage, and it's still not mine. Now, there's a, there's been a lot of ink spilled about what did God, what did Jesus mean by this? There's a lot of, was he really saying camel? Oh, the word for cable in Hebrew is kind of similar to the word for camel. Maybe he was talking about like a metal cable, which is hard to get through, you know, but uh, or there's another, there's another theory that says uh, in Jerusalem along the wall there was a gate called the Eye of the Needle. And 
the, now, this is based on not Jerusalem. This is based on what we've seen in other fortress cities where at night they would close the main gate, and um, if, you wanted to, if you needed to get in with your camel, you'd have to actually take everything off the camel, and it would have to get, in, get down on its knees, and actually the, the camel driver would have to lead it through this tiny gate that was just big enough for the camel itself. There is no archaeological record of that gate in Jerusalem. There's no archaeological record of that type of gate anywhere nearby. And that was from one dig that happened elsewhere. Now, that could be it. Every once in a while, you'll see an analogy in the Bible that seems, the interpretation of it seems a little too convenient for the sermonizer. We could spend a lot of time talking about what's the baggage you have to take off your camel. And I've, I've, I've watched a few of those sermons. They're, they're actually some of them pretty good. Um, there's something else, though, and, and here's where my linguistics comes into play. Historical linguistics, we like to look at, one of the fun things is to look at where idioms come up, come into play. How did they develop and, um, you know, um, where did phrases like wet your whistle come from, you know, um, which if you ever want to know, it's, it's from English pubs. The, the old ceramic mugs had a whistle on it. When you wanted a refill, you blow the whistle. It has nothing to do with wetting this as a whistle. It's what it became into. We, we, we metaphored our Vogelbach. It was actually a whistle on a mug. I want a refill. Um, you wet your whistle. Things like that is really fun. Well, guess what? There was one in Persia called, or the, the saying was, it's harder for an elephant to go through the eye of a sewing needle than it is to convince my wife she's wrong. You know, something like that. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not using that. This is an illustration. Now, we know that there was a lot of Persian influence in, in uh, the culture and the people of Israel because of, of um, the diaspora, the, the time that they spent in, in um, well, as slaves in Persia. What's the biggest animal in Israel at this time? A camel. So they, in Persia, the saying, we use the biggest animal in their experience, an elephant, and it got translated, I think, in Israeli culture into a camel. So what, if we look at it from a cultural context, Jesus is using a phrase they know, a phrase they would use to complain about, it's harder to get so-and-so to do this or that. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's a phrase that implied impossibility. It's not going to happen. I really think he, can, he was just, Jesus does this all the time. He was, he was part of this culture. He grew up here. He used the idioms, and then he turns them on their head, though, and he uses them in ways that confronts people and confronts their beliefs, and that's what he's doing here, and that's what he's doing with us. The disciples were even more amazed. That's their response to the camel analogy. Even more amazed. Who then can be saved? And what does Jesus say? Yeah, it's impossible. I, I, I kind of, if I try to put myself in that context, I, I sort of imagine him savoring that little moment. There's probably a nice dramatic pause there. Yeah, with man, this is impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. Let's take another context moment. How big of a deal do you think that was for Jesus to say in that moment? Jesus was the reason, was about to be the reason, it's possible. He was, he was days away. What do you think it meant to him to say that? And the disciples didn't know that yet. 
They didn't. He, Jesus, the reason Jesus predicts his death a third time on the next section is because the disciples weren't getting it. Okay, so keep that in mind when he says all things are possible through God. But we don't get to decide how it's possible, do we? This is the main point of the sermon. Riches are not going to get you to heaven, right? Riches don't gain you favor with God. Riches don't show favor from God. Nothing does. Only God. Jesus' sacrifice shows favor. And he calls us to follow him. There's your main point. Jesus is about to sacrifice his life for us. He called a rich man to sacrifice what was most important to him and follow him in sacrifice. He couldn't do it. But he used that moment to help his disciples. That man walked away. He made his choice. And the disciples speak up. We've left everything to follow you. And Jesus says, truly I tell you. Now, okay, so the main point, let me, let me just reemphasize the main point. We've got all this context happening, all this lead up that, that become main points of other sermons. Um, wealth, camels, lots of things, all about salvation. Christ's main point about salvation, though, is it's not you doing it. It's God. It almost, goes, it almost hints back to that very first thing. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Only God makes this possible. Not you. Not your accomplishments. Not following the commandments. Notice he doesn't say don't follow the commandments. So that, let's, not, let's not run with that one. But still live your lives honoring him. But that's not what does it. That's not what gets you into heaven. That's not what, well, that's not what inherits the, the kingdom of God. We were created for that. He wants to give us that. He's trying to give us that to the point of full, complete sacrifice. But he calls us to follow him in that sacrifice. Now, now we can jump into this final section. This is the winding it down bit making it real for his disciples. And remember, he knows what they're about to go through. He knows what they're following him into. So he says, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters, all these things. He says, no, no, you're going to have all that a hundred times in this life and the next. Another passage that has been really misused. This is where a lot of our health and wealth gospel people like to, like to run to. This is where a lot of our... Um, televised church fundraising events like to run to. If you just send me your social security check, God's going to reward you a hundred times. And you'll get... You know, we, we, this has been another one of those misused. But if we look at it in the context of where, who he's saying this to, and if we look at it in the context of what was just said, God didn't call it Jesus didn't call every rich person to give up all their wealth, did he? 
We have a lot of examples of wealthy people who were not asked to sell everything and give to the poor. Okay, so that's not the lesson, the main lesson. Caring for the poor is an important one, and that shows up a lot. But uh, danger of greed, that's another big one. It's not quite what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about trust. Do you trust yourself or do you trust God? And he says, if you give all of this up for my sake, for the sake of God, for the sake of his kingdom, for the sake of sacrificing for others, and then what he lists next, I think we misunderstand it. I think we turn it into what we wish it meant. Let me give an example from our life. When we joined Wycliffe, uh, there's, a, there's a time where they, they kind of do some intensive interviews. It's called Quest. And at the end of it, you're told whether or not you've been accepted into Wycliffe, and it was two weeks of just very intense training and lots of interviews and lots of psychological analysis, but lots of, there were moments where they had to ask you, what are you willing to give up for this? Because the funding model is such that uh, you're going to give up raises. You don't get raises. No, you're going to give up bonuses. You don't get bonuses. Um, you're going to have to beg for your money. I heard that. Uh, don't expect to own a home. You might be able to, but you need to not expect it. Uh, if, that's a, if that's a deal breaker for you. And there was a young couple who left after that one, realizing that we don't want to give that up. Now, nothing to do with salvation. <laughs> I think for them, they probably made the right decision. Uh, and I'm sure that they, I, I knew them, they, they, I'm sure they had an amazing ministry in their communities and wherever they were. But that was, a, that was one that hurt to think about, not having a home. She was pregnant too, by the way. So that, you've got some added dynamics in that decision for them. So that's what we were told. And I was single at the time, so I'm like, yeah, whatever. Um, I'd moved a lot, you know, kind of felt okay. Uh, here's the interesting thing. What Jesus says here, the hundredfold, you'll receive a hundredfold. I think we, we don't realize it. We don't understand what, what he's really saying here sometimes. I've never felt without a home. Christy had this, sorry, I get emotional about this. <clears throat> Christy had this tradition when we're out in the mountains. We would get to these little trekkers lodges where the floors are kind of and the, 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 the bed is, is, does not have a mattress. Um, the, the room is so tiny, you know, we're bumping into each other to just get our backpacks off. And the first thing she does is she gets out all these little knickknacks that were carried up in a backpack for one purpose. There's a little picture of her parents, and there's a little flower, or dried flower or something from her mom. There's a rock, probably their dad gave her and said it was really sentimental. She makes home wherever we are. God gave us that because we said, you know what, we're going to go. We're going to go to Nepal. We're going to walk up these trails that we've never seen before. We're going to be a little bit afraid of it. Uh, we're not going to know what's going what's to happen up there. And everywhere we are, we feel home because we're where God wants us to be. And Christy puts little memories of or little reminders of that this is our home. For tonight, home. We've received hospitality like I never imagined us receiving from you guys too. We've received, we've received riches 
from you. We've been able to experience things as a family, uh, afford things as a family, because of the generosity of churches, because we said, all right, we're not going to work for the paycheck. I've received brothers and sisters like you wouldn't believe. I, could walk, I walked into a Bible study in a Tibetan village, predominantly Tibetan village, and all I heard in English, they don't speak English, was brother, 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 as I walked in. What, God, what Jesus says here is not a reward for giving up for him for giving up things for him, for giving up our status for him, for giving up our hopes sometimes for him. It's a promise. It's not a reward. We did not earn this. This is a promise, though, of God saying, I will take care of you. And mostly, and most importantly, into eternal life. So you're not really giving up anything. That's the point that Jesus is making here. He's taking away our right to take pride in what we do and put pride in what God's doing and inviting us to be a part of. That's what he means by follow him. He's inviting us to be a part of what he's doing. It does mean sacrifice. Look at what one of the other promises is. Persecutions. That gets deleted by the health and wealth people. That gets deleted in the building fund sermon. We've experienced those. But God makes it possible. And he keeps his promises. He has for us. He has for you. It's hard to see sometimes, though, huh? That's our context sometimes. So, do we, in our time, still suffer the same assumptions about salvation? I'm not going to answer these right now. These are our questions that I want you to go from here today with, uh, especially for our church here. As we think about coming out of the COVID time, as we think about what do we need to let go of in order to follow Christ? Do we still suffer the same assumptions? Do we still rank first to last based on accomplishment? That's the whole, that ending phrase, the first will be last, the last will be first. He's basically saying, you don't actually get it. And that's okay. People that you think have got it all together, God sees them. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. People who have nothing, God sees them. You should too. Do we base our trust on our wealth or the wealth of others? On our reputation or the reputation of others? On our status or the status of others? What do you need to let go to fall? What does Christ If you were the one who said, good teacher, what do I have to do? What would his response may not be, sell everything. What would it be? Would it be give up your self-righteousness? Give up your right to be right? Give up your anger? Maybe. He knows us, though, and he loves us. He looks into us. And he knows what is our hurdle to being truly his and following him. Only God, not us. Only God can save us. Our lives should be lived as a reflection of his sacrifice, not as a trophy of it. 
We don't get to brag about what we did. We reflect the sacrifice and the gift that God gave. We don't look what God gave me. Now, going back to camels. <laughs> this is my concluding statement, I promise. What is lost in all the arguing among theologians about camels and needles is the very real notion that wealth is pointless. In a world created by the God who is love, a world created for caring for others, helping each other, loving each other, giving ourselves for the sake of others, and in a Bible riddled with examples of prideful elites trying to play God in order to avoid acknowledging how loved all of his created ones are, wealth is, at its best, a facade. And at its worst, our downfall. Where's our trust? Trust in our accomplishments? Or trust in God, who makes salvation possible? And our response in following Him? Thank you. I hope this made sense. Sometimes my, my sermons, like my lectures, are a bit of rambling, and when I don't have you asking me questions, I don't know if we hit. But I love you guys. Thank you for having me here, and I just pray that we all can find what's in our lives that is blocking us from following him and sell it.